a return that was 12 years in the making. How does Cristiano Ronaldo's move back to Manchester United affect the club's tactics? And how do Juventus move into a post-Ronaldo era? Also, how have Inter Milan been adjusting to life without one of the best strikers on the planet and their title-winning coach? Finally, the transfer window is closed. I've got five under-the-radar moves that I think will make big, big impacts. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Tactics Room presented by Breaking the Lines. Welcome back, should I say. Uh, episode two, look how far we've come. What a milestone. The second episode on this, this tactical analysis podcast. If you're a returning listener, uh, you're a legend. You're practically a Tactics Room veteran at this point. You've been with us since the beginning, so pat yourself on the back. Uh, if you're new to this podcast, though, no worries. You've only missed exactly one episode. Uh, basically, just a, a, a gist of what this is about, what the Tactics Room is about. This is a podcast that gets us to think differently. Instead of gossiping about the same clickbait, surface-level headlines that every other soccer podcast on the planet is debating, we try to dig a little deeper, not just with this podcast, but at Breaking the Lines in general. Go beneath the surface, understand the tactical implications that these moves have, hence the name, The Tactics Room. Every show, we've got a few topics, a question for each topic, and a bottom line which sums everything up. So that's a little bit about the structure of this podcast. Last episode, we discussed Manuel Locatelli's move to Juventus, Martin Odegaard back at the Emirates, and we broke down Jesse Marsh's Leipzig. So I strongly, strongly recommend you go back and take a listen to that one if you haven't heard it already after you conclude this one, episode two, of course. And let's go back and talk about that last episode for a second. First of all, uh, to everybody who gave it such rave reviews, shout it out on Twitter, uh, Anything they possibly could do to get the word out about this podcast, big, big thank you so much. You're all real ones. I really, really do appreciate the support. Uh, It was fantastic. Made me feel good. I'm sorry for blowing your eardrums out with the music. Um, Some things things we learn the hard way. That's all I will say about that. Uh, Been a while since I had gone and poked around in Adobe Audition, and if you were using headphones at the start of that podcast, um, you probably had to see a doctor to regain your hearing. So I apologize for that. Um, you live and you learn. That's all I have to say. Hopefully the music for this episode was a little bit more bearable. Um, but the bottom line, uh, on this, which isn't even a question or a topic, but the bottom line, I guess, is, uh, thank you everybody who supported episode one on, on Breaking the Lines on Twitter and everybody who listened just in general, even if you didn't break it out, even if you didn't shout it out, thank you so much for, uh, for, for giving us a shot and for listening. All right. Enough blabbering, enough yapping about things that in the grand scheme of things don't matter. Let's get into what we have for the day and the big story. The big story, and the big story for the last eight or nine days, is and has been Cristiano Ronaldo's return to Old Trafford. I I don't need to give you a whole big backstory about about Ronaldo's first stint with Manchester United and who Ronaldo is and all this nonsense. Um, Well, not nonsense, but stuff that is not relevant to this, because if you're listening to this podcast... Hopefully, you know who uh, who Cristiano Ronaldo is and you know about his history with Manchester United. What I want to, to get to the bottom of right now, what I want to, to open today's show with, is how should United play with this version of Cristiano Ronaldo? Because while it is CR7, it is Cristiano Ronaldo, it is one of the greatest players in Manchester United's history, it's a different version of CR7, I think we can say, than the one that left Old Trafford 12 years ago. And the reason why is is this version of Ronaldo, and we saw it at Juventus, I think he best serves this United squad as a bit of a roaming center forward, which is different from his first stint at Old Trafford, on which he usually played on the left of an attacking three. This is a Cristiano Ronaldo, this is a version of Cristiano Ronaldo that I think will play best with this United squad 
as a number nine, as a center forward. Um, and that's largely for, for a number of reasons, but the biggest one is, is this Manchester United attack. It's very based on individualism, technical ability. Um, it's become a little bit of a meme, hasn't it? The sense that, that it genuinely looks at sometimes that United's plan in the final third is just to, to, to be better. Basically it, it, it's, it's a meme, but at times it does look, look accurate, which is that this United squad thrives in the final third on just finding space and exploiting it no matter who is playing in those roles. And having Ronaldo in the middle helps in a number of different ways. But the biggest way that he helps is just that he attracts attention. He will attract the center backs and the holding midfielders onto him, which opens up that space for the more, well, not for the more technically skilled players, but for the other technically skilled players on the wing. No offense, Edison Cavani, but that is not something that Cavani is able to do at the same rate as Ronaldo. Because when you've got Ronaldo in a team, he immediately becomes the defense's main priority to deal with. And when you've got all these these technically skilled players around him, that opens up opportunities for potentially Jaden Sancho to have more 1v1s down that right-hand side. Or it opens up space for Bruno Fernandes to make a run in behind because the center back who would have been marking that space is now double-teaming Ronaldo who's dropped into the half space. This is an attack that thrives on finding space, and Ronaldo is is one of the best players in the world at doing that. And that's the biggest reason why I think Ronaldo needs to be playing in the middle of whatever setup Ole Gunnar Solskjaer chooses to use with this Manchester United. Because if you play him on the left, which to be fair, he has done at Juventus, not nearly as much as he did at Real Madrid or Manchester United prior to that, but if you put him on the left, if you stick him over on the left, that that impact, that wreaking havoc impact of just, just throwing a defense into disarray because nobody really knows how to mark him or how many bodies they should bring to him or whatever, you throw that over on the wing, that ability is, is now somewhat limited because you're sticking him over on the wing. He doesn't get to play in the middle. He doesn't get to maximize that, that impact, which is wreaking havoc by sucking every single defender onto him. That's that's one of the biggest reasons why Ronaldo is such a good fit in this United side is that he opens up space for those other technically skilled players and putting him over on the left, I think, minimizes that, doesn't get the most that you can possibly get of, of that. So that's why I want him playing in the middle. But also, he's a player who, and, and again, this should not come as news to anybody because we've all watched Cristiano play, but he can drop deep into the half space or, or even deeper than that and create chances himself, which is another thing that Edison Cavani didn't do. In fact, Edison Cavani, you know what? With Manchester United, all more power to them for that signing because that was a signing that when United brought in Cavani, it was a, it seemed like a, a panic deadline deal buy that wasn't going to pan out at all. And, and United were, were clowned for it, actually, I remember, for the weeks that followed. But Cavani was... A, a serviceable center forward. He scored goals at a very efficient rate, it should be said, but that was really all that he did, to be totally fair. 31.8 touches per 90 with United a season ago, and the only players who that was better than in the entire Manchester United team was Dean Henderson and David De Gea, which is is so telling in just how, ju- just how little involved he was in Manchester United's build-up play. And Cristiano Ronaldo is the opposite of that. Cristiano Ronaldo is the player who, even at 36 years old, will be the centerpiece, will be the focal point of the way this United attack create and build and progress the ball. And it all just, just, it all comes back to the central point, which is that he will create space. Ronaldo will create space. He will cause the defense to ask questions. And there will be points over a 90-minute game where 
Maybe for a moment, the defense forgets about Bruno Fernandez, and then next thing you know, he's made a run in behind. Or they forget about Jaden Sancho, and next thing you know, he's he's taking on a, a weak defender and finding his way into the penalty area. That's what Cristiano Ronaldo brings, among other things. But in this United attack, that may be the biggest thing that Cristiano Ronaldo brings. He carries the ball forward better than almost any striker on the entire planet. He will suck defenders onto him, and he will exploit that space for the other players in this incredibly skilled Manchester United attack. The one player, well, not the one player, but one of the players that I really want to focus on here, because I think he may be the biggest beneficiary of this move, aside from Ronaldo himself, is Marcus Rashford, who who for me is is the option now at left wing. He's the player that I want to see playing on the left if Ole chooses to stick with this 4-2-3-1. And the reason why is because Rashford is that player who can who can go and take the space that Ronaldo will leave when he drops deep to create or when he drops into the half spaces or whatever. Uh, Rashford will start on the left. He, he typically in recent years has started on the left, but he does like to get into those central positions. He's clinical in front of goal. Thanks to his history as a striker. When he first came through the Manchester United Academy, he can run in behind or into space. Um, he loves, he loves a diagonal run. I mean, this is a player in Marcus Rashford who I think is tailor made to play in an attack with Cristiano Ronaldo in it. And it's largely because of his ability to then to then when Ronaldo is not playing as that traditional number nine, which he will at times, but most of, of Ronaldo's involvement with this team will likely be dropping a bit deeper to create. Marcus Rashford's the player who can then go and take that space because he's comfortable playing in the middle. And then maybe you get a player like Luke Shaw who's advancing up the pitch to play as that ancillary winger, or maybe maybe Paul Pogba then goes and occupies the space over on that left side. But Marcus Rashford, for me, will benefit massively from having Ronaldo in the team. Because when it was Cavani a striker, that space was never vacated. That space was never available because either the center backs didn't follow Cavani or Cavani was there himself. And I think now that Ronaldo's in the team, that space will be available for Marcus Rashford. And that's where I think he does his best work. I also think Jaden Sancho is a massive beneficiary of this. And I've explained a little bit why uh, in the last few minutes. But Jaden Sancho is a player who who can make the runs in behind, but he would prefer, he'd prefer to take players on 1v1 with the ball. And Ronaldo's presence, Ronaldo's involvement in this team likely means more isolation chances over on the right because it's more than likely that Ronaldo will will attract attention from either the defensive midfielder and a center back or both center backs. And it makes it all the more likely that the side that Jaden Sancho is on will be a bit isolated if Cristiano Ronaldo is the one who feeds him the ball. So that means more 1v1 opportunities, more chance to take players on the dribble, to, to, to take on players on the dribble, and to, with Jaden Sancho, more than likely beat them. So I think Jaden Sancho is a player who really, really thrives with having Ronaldo in the team. But it's Cristiano Ronaldo. I mean, everybody who plays in this United side will be better. And that's the fact of the matter. If you're one of those, oh my gosh, oh my, I saw a couple of these. If you're one of those people who who saw the, the Ronaldo back to United move and tried to be edgy and was like, oh no, he's going to, he's going to throw a wrench in things. He's going to ruin it. Yada, yada, yada. T- touch grass. Oh my, touch grass. It's Cristiano Ronaldo. Cristiano Ronaldo is still one of the, I'd say four or five best players on the planet. He is going to make this United side better. Don't try to be edgy. Don't try to be quirky by saying he's going to make United worse. He won't. That's the that that's it. That's the end of the story. He will not make United worse. Quit saying it because it's not true. <sighs> now, back to what we were supposed to be talking about. Apologies for that brief rant. But uh, here's how I'd line up Manchester United 
with Cristiano Ronaldo in it. Very briefly, I'd go a midfield pivot of Pogba and Fred. I'd go for an attacking three of Rashford, Fernandez, and Sancho. And then Ronaldo leading the Lions, a 4-2-3-1. That's what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has tended to use with this Manchester United side. I think it would be interesting, potentially, if we saw maybe Paul Pogba over on the left side of that attacking three, and then Scott McTominay comes in and takes that place in the pivot. And then we see maybe Pogba come centrally and still be able to take on those central positions when Luke Shaw attacks the final third. Um, those are all semantics. You, I, you can go with either one of those if you're Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It doesn't really matter. The bottom line is I think the best way to use Cristiano Ronaldo is in a 4-2-3-1 with Ronaldo as the one. The actual bottom line, and the one that I have written down, because I said the bottom line a couple times, but this is the actual bottom line, is that Ronaldo helps this United team in more ways than one, but he has to be playing in the middle, I think, in order to fully maximize it. That's the bottom line. I think Ronaldo absolutely makes United better. I don't think that's a conversation, but if he wants to, to, to reach the peak that he can achieve with United this time around, he's got to play in the middle. And I think I think Ole understands that. I, I'm sure if Ronaldo wants to, that's where he'll be. I think he offers significantly more than Edison Cavani. Um, and I, I do think at the end of the day, that's what's going to happen. But the other side of this, and truthfully, I think the more interesting side of this conversation is how will Juventus move on? Because this is a Juventus team that, as we know, has its weaknesses. And we've seen them, not only did we see them a season ago when they finished fourth in Serie A, but we've seen them to start this Serie A campaign as well. Just one point out of a possible six through their first two match days. There were a lot of criticisms that Ronaldo actually made Juventus worse in a sense. Instead of the style of player that that emphasized the team, which Juventus were, were really known for in the early to mid-2010s when they reached their, their peaks, he was more of a, of a player who, who, who well, not, I, I suppose not that, but... but Ronaldo kind of turned this Juventus mentality and switched the tactics to much of the play in the opposition half was centered around giving the ball to Cristiano and letting him work his magic, which is a, a far cry from what made them so good in the first place in this decade, which was that emphasizing the team and, and moving the ball and, and all of that, all that jazz. Um, and while I think that's fair, I think it's, I, I, I don't say I agree with it, but I understand the logic behind it. I think what's more likely is that it's it's just due to to really poor recruitment, I'd say, since like 2015, 2016. They never really found replacements for players like Mirlan Pjanic, and even before that, Marquisio, Paul Pogba. The Juventus team of the mid-2010s was nearly unbeatable, unless you were the Barcelona team that was also nearly unbeatable. But, but I, I don't think Ronaldo single-handedly is responsible for the downfall of this Juventus side, because I think... When all Ronaldo did was put a band-aid over Juventus's glaring weaknesses, and they started to show towards the end of last season, and they're really showing now. I think I think Juventus were far too reliant on Ronaldo to to provide goals and to to take points in league matches, and we really have been starting to see it. So what do Juventus do now that now that, that Ronaldo is out the door? Well, if the transfer window were still open, we could be talking here, we could be sitting here talking about potential replacements, but that's obviously not the case now. They brought in Moise Keane, which could be a serviceable signing. It's also just in general impossible to really call somebody a Ronaldo, quote, replacement, so that wouldn't have been fair anyway to have that conversation. Um, but I, I, obviously now, and there really is no alternative, the alterations that Juventus make have to come on the tactical side of things instead of the personnel side. The first thing 
that Juventus should do tactically to adjust to this post-Ronaldo life is to switch to a shape that allows you to get the best out of Federico Chiesa. He is the player that I'm focusing on that I really, really, really think Juventus need to emphasize. Chiesa, for me, is the heir to the throne at Juventus. And we've seen it all summer with the Italian national team, who is fantastic at the Euros. He scored a brilliant goal against Bulgaria during this this most recent international uh, matches window. He's got the ability to create something out of nothing. He can play with either foot. He's got this unique combination of pace and skill. I mean, I could go on and on about Federico Chiesa. He seemingly never runs out of energy quickly. I mean, I, I will be the first to say, I did not know a whole lot about Federico Chiesa at Fiorentina. I, I, at that time, I was not super involved. It was, what, two or three years ago. I was not super involved in, in Syria. I knew the name. I knew he was a rising talent. I didn't know a whole lot about him. And it wasn't until recently that I really started to understand fully how good of a player Federico Chiesa is. He is brilliant, and he's quickly become one of my favorite players on the entire planet. The problem is we don't get to see the full extent of what Chiesa can offer in the 4-4-2 that Juve have largely used since his arrival from Fiorentina. He's usually, in this shape, been stuck on the right of a midfield four as a right midfielder or as a second striker, but he's best playing in between those. He's best as a right wing in an attacking three. And that's why I think we need to see Juventus shift to either a 4-3-3 that Max Allegri used at times in his first time with Juventus or a 4-2-3-1, because either one will prioritize Chiesa's positioning, it will allow you to get the best out of him, and that's, I think, step one for this post-Ronaldo Juventus. Step two for me in, in getting back to the glory days of Juventus football is actually a name that if you listen to episode one, you should be familiar with. Step two for me is bringing Manuel Locatelli into the 11 and letting him play as a deep-lying playmaker. Now, disclaimer, I am not calling Manuel Locatelli Andrea Pirlo. I, I, that's not, that's not what is happening here. That is so disrespectful to one of the greatest midfielders of all time. What I am saying is that when Juventus were at their peak, they had somebody playing that deep lying playmaker role. And that man was Andrea Pirlo. We have not seen since then somebody who can effectively play that role the way Pirlo did. And Locatelli is probably the closest thing they've had to it since Pirlo's retirement. Am I expecting Locatelli to be nearly as good as Pirlo was, especially in the beginning? No, but we saw, we all saw how important that role was to Juventus's success. I think Locatelli is the one who you can bring it back for. This Juve midfield is crying out for a player who can be consistently creative, consistently incisive. They signed Locatelli from Sassuolo to be exactly that. And the good thing about Locatelli is that he doesn't really handcuff you tactically either. And that was something that we mentioned on episode one. Locatelli is not a player who needs to be playing deepest in a midfield three. He, he doesn't need to be playing as part of a midfield two in a 4-4-2. He can succeed and thrive no matter what the, the the midfield is composed with no matter what shape you're playing and he can play as a, as a traditional number six or a number eight excuse me he can play as well he can play as a, as a traditional number six but he can play as a traditional number eight in a four four two or in a four two three one or he can play as the deepest in a midfield three or as one of the two number eights in a midfield three i mean locatelli really can play anywhere and he's got the ability for me there's no excuse once once 
October, November rolls around, and Locatelli is comfortable in this this Juventus side. I understand now not starting him because he's still new to the side, and and you don't want to change a whole lot, which is fine. But there's really no excuse for me if Locatelli is not in the Juventus eleven consistently by I'd say mid November then I'd be disappointed because Locatelli is the player who can sit in that deep-lying playmaker role and, and create and make things happen. That is so, so crucial. That was so crucial, and we saw it when Juventus were at their peak. I think Locatelli is the player who can replicate that to an extent in a post-Ronaldo Juventus. And the third player who I want to focus on is Pablo Dybala. And I know it's a controversial name because some Juventus fans have grown out of favor with him. That you can't really play him as a lone center forward. You can't really play him as a central midfielder. It's 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 a mixed bag of results when you play him on one of the wings. There's not a whole lot that you can do with him in a 4-4-2, in that 4-4-2 that Juventus have been using, unless you play him as part of that striker duo and have him play as kind of a shadow striker. But I think there is still a place for him in this team. And if you think about pre-Ronaldo Juventus, when when Juventus were making Champions League finals and when they were winning Serie A titles like it was nothing. Dybala was one of the main men. He was one of the, the key pieces of those teams, albeit his young age. He was so, so good. Why? Because he was able to tuck in behind a more traditional center forward, whether it was Mario Mandzukic or Gonzalo Higuain. He was able to create from that role. He found a lot of space in the half spaces. He was able to make late runs. Alvaro Morata is no Mandzukic. He's no Higuain. But he can play a similar role relative to Dybala in the sense that he's your traditional number nine. He can put the ball in the back of the net. And you can play Dybala, whether, again, whether it's in a 4-2-3-1, which I, th- I think if we're going off of stuff I've said in the past, you would probably prefer because 4-4-2 doesn't work for a host of other reasons. But if you play in a 4-2-3-1 with Dybala as the number 10, you're really not taking that position away from anybody because this Juventus side don't have a clear-cut, sole-purpose attacking midfielder either. So I think it would make sense to, to bring Dybala back into the team just like it was pre-Ronaldo. Dybala was one of the most important pieces, I think, there are ways to make it work, and and as I've alluded to, I think the way to do it is with a 4 2 3 one because you can't really play Dybala as, as a central midfielder. You can play him as a lone striker. You can't really play him on the wing, but you can play him as somebody who sits behind your, your tr- more traditional number nine and uh, to an extent kind of hides behind him and creates chances from there. Those are the three players that I'm targeting in, in, in this post-Ronaldo era. Federico Chiesa, Manuel Locatelli, and Paolo Dybala. I think if you can find ways to maximize all three of them, you will be fine if you are Juventus. The defense is golden. The defense is perfectly fine. Chiellini, Bonucci, Matias Delict. I'm a big fan of all three of them. I think the fullbacks are, there, there's no immediate need for replacements there. The midfield I spoke about on, on the last episode. Yes, it's weak, but Locatelli fixes a lot of that. Um, and then the attacking three, you go, you go, uh, you go Morata, and then Dybala as the number ten, Chiesa over on the right, and then on the left, take a pick, who, whoever you want over on the left side of things. But that's how I think this Juventus post Ronaldo should line up, and you can argue maybe Max Allegri is the best man for the job given his success in Juventus's immediately pre-Ronaldo era. The bottom line here is Juventus. Obviously, Juventus will need to change the tactics and not the personnel, but they've got the players necessary, I think, 
to successfully do it. Ronaldo is out the door. The post-Ronaldo era is gone. It's scary, I'm sure, but you now have a chance to completely rethink the way that you play the game of football. This is not a side that has never seen success before. This is a side that was, up until last season, the, the cream of the crop in Serie A. The, the, the formula, the recipe is not, is not missing. It has not left. This is a club that three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, was making runs in the Champions League and playing in Champions League finals. They know how to do it. It's honestly, it's a lot of the same players. You've got a chance to get back to where you were before Ronaldo joined you in, uh, in Turin. So that's the bottom line here. I think it's very doable, and I'm very excited to see what Juventus look like. There's going to be a buffer period, of course, but I'm excited to see how Juventus look once they, they hit the ground running again without Ronaldo in the clubhouse. So for my new listeners, that is, is how this show is, for the most part, structured. It's a storyline, a couple questions, and then a bottom line. Hope you enjoyed, because you've got a couple more topics still to discuss today. We're going to keep things in Serie A, which by the way, like for, for, I was thinking about this, the show so far, this first episode and a half has been very much Premier League and Serie A. Like it's just a coincidence. That's not how it's going to be. It's, it's going to be the top five, top six leagues, depending on where you rank Liga versus Liga Portugal. But this is not just a Premier League Serie A podcast. I know it may seem that way and I know it might turn some people off, but uh, I've actually got some, I believe it's La Liga storylines later on in the show, either La Liga or Bundesliga. So stick around because it's not just Premier League Serie A. If you like those two leagues, I'm sure you're enjoying the podcast, but we are going to dive into these other leagues later in the show and then uh, and then as the episodes progress. But as I said, we're sticking in Serie A and we're talking about the defending champions into Milan because although they are the, the reigning champions from a season ago... This is still a relatively new look side, and a lot of people had their questions about how competitive Inter would be without Antonio Conte, without Romelu Lukaku, and without Akraf Hakimi, who have all left the club, Lukaku to Chelsea, Hakimi to PSG, and Conte, as recently as a couple hours ago, I don't think anything has drastically changed, still without a managerial position. Um... So how are, essentially, the question is, how are Inter adjusting to life without them? How different do they look? How are they playing now without one of the best strikers in the world and one of the most effective wingbacks on the entire planet, along with one of the best coaches in the world? Three of of the best at their roles are out the door. How are Inter surviving? So full disclaimer, um, this segment I'm going off of, of... Inter's matches in Serie A. They're unbeaten so far, two for two, wins against Genoa and Verona. Those are the two matches that I'm going off of with this analysis, obviously, because those are the only two matches they've played. Um, and the first thing that that we should point out very basically is, is just the shape. And it is the same one as a season ago. That has not changed. It's still that 5-3-2, that 3-4-1-2, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's still that three center backs, two wing backs, and then the the striker pairing. It's it, that's the same. To back three of Alessandro Bastoni, Stefan Devray, and Milan Skriniar, Ivan Perisic and Matteo Damiano, the wing backs, Hakan Celanolu, Nicolo Barella, and uh, Marcelo Brozovic are playing in midfield with Lautaro Martinez and Edin Dzeko as the two strikers. And the first thing that you'll notice when when Inter are in possession is that that back three or back five quickly turns into a back four. And it's because of two reasons. Number one, it's it's Ivan Perisic as that left wing back. 
Everybody and their mother knows that Perisic is best as a winger. He's best when he's playing in the attacking third. That's where he plays for the Croatian national team. That's where he played with Bayern Munich. Um, Ivan Perisic is is a wingback who will barely defend. He will bomb up the pitch. So when when Inter are in possession, that's what he's doing right off the bat. And it shifts to a back four because Bastoni goes and takes that left back role and Marcelo Brozovic tucks into the back line with, again, Perisic bombing forward. And that does two things. Number one, it allows Perisic to play in the final third without giving anything away defensively, but it also makes it easier for Brozovic to get involved. And that's the player that I want to focus on because he, for me, is the most important player in this team. It's not It's not Lothar Martinez. It's not Nicola Barella. It's not any of the center backs. It's Marcelo Brozovic. Brozovic is the one who starts the moves. He's the one who brings the ball forward. He's the one who moves the ball laterally. And having a player like that is so, so crucial because the two midfielders he's playing with in Hakan Celanolu and Nicolo Barella want to get forward and they want to get wide. So sometimes Brozovic is the only one in the middle third, but it works perfectly fine because he's so, he's so comfortable on the ball. He's so hard to dispossess that he almost acts as two defensive midfielders in that role because he's so strong defensively, but he's also so good at progressing the ball. And actually, we see that when Brozovic gets subbed off. That happened in the Verona game. We saw Arturo Vidal come on and immediately, like within seconds after that substitution, it went from only Brozovic playing in that 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 space in front of the center backs to now Vidal and Barella have to come back. And so, yes, it's true that Brozovic is playing the role of two midfielders. That's how comfortable he is in his role. And that's why he's so important. The other player who I want to focus on is Alessandro Bastoni, because he's the main reason why Inter can play with three center backs. And he is a player as well who I don't think gets enough attention in this team. Inter play with three center backs. Any team that plays with three center backs needs still a way to progress the ball from that back three. You can't operate with three stagnant center backs who can't play the ball, who can't drive up the pitch. And Bastoni is the one who largely prevents that from being the case. His ability to drive forward with the ball into space, he can bypass the first line of defense and and lay it off to a player or pick a ball deep. It means that Inter don't play with three relatively stagnant center backs. It adds a bit of dynamism to the defense, along with Stefan DeVry's long passing ability. But Bastoni is, is really the biggest reason why this three-back system for Inter Milan works so well. Because although it is three central defenders, and in theory, you're sacrificing potentially a more creative midfielder or a winger for a third center back... Bastoni is still so progressive relative to others at his position that you still are getting a big contribution from the defense in possession, again, alongside Stefan DeVry's long passing ability. So that's why I love Bastoni. I think he makes that back three work. That's why I love Brozovic. He is maybe the unsung hero in this Inter Milan squad, though I do think he's starting to get a lot more attention, and rightfully so, because he plays a hugely important role. So when Inter build, when Inter Milan build, when they win the ball back, and this is mostly in their own half, they use one of two tactics. They like predominantly to build from the back. They're not really a side that, that plays long a whole lot. Um, and the first of two ways that they progress the ball is by progressing the ball down the wings, where the center backs, midfielders, and wing backs can all work together to get the ball into the final third. That's where we see Hakan Chalanolu and Nicolo Barella. That, that's where we see them, them play important roles. That's really where we see their first bits of action 
when Inter win the ball back is by setting up those passing triangles and progressing the ball. That's also why the wingback system works so well, because in Darmian and with Perisic, you've got two players who are comfortable getting forward, but who are also comfortable with playing the ball. So that's why why that 3-4-1-2-3-5-5-3-2, whatever you want to call it, that's why it works so well in the beginning phases in possession. The other way that they build is by, and this is so neat to me because we don't see really a whole lot of teams do it, but Inter do it so consistently. The other way they build is by playing long from the back line. So a center back, whether it be DeVry or, or Skriniar, a, a, a long line-breaking paw directly into the feet of one of the strikers who's come deep to receive. Usually, that's Edin Dzeko, and then that striker will then flick it on for somebody else or lay it off to a player already making a run. And that's also part of the reason why, and I mentioned earlier, Inter Milan often only have one player in traditional midfield, which is Marcelo Brozovic, because Barella and Chalanolu are already advanced so high up the pitch. But they get away with it because this tactic of progressing the ball, which is defense to attack, direct, uh, makes it so that you don't really need midfielders. If you have a player like Edin Dzeko, who's very good in hold-up play, he can come deep to receive, he's tough to take off the ball, you can, in theory, have everybody else make runs off of him. You don't need three or four bodies in midfield because you're you're bypassing it entirely. That being said, um, the success rate of it, and it's the same with any club that tries to use this tactic, it's not great because it is, it, it should be said, it is a risky ball. Usually it's got some some mustard on it. The the striker usually has a defender on his shoulder and usually there are other defenders in the area. So the success rate is not fantastic, but it's it's so quick. It's so it's so bang, bang. Whenever Inter win the ball back, it happens so quickly that they can try it again and again and again whenever they win the ball back. Because sure, while sometimes it doesn't work, Sometimes it does, and sometimes it leads to some really, really good chances for Inter Milan. That, by the way, that that Dzeko and hold-up play is one of the ways that he's helping to lessen the impact of the Lukaku departure, um, and he does a very good job at it, it should be said. There's lots of, of one-touch passing, quick build-up in this Inter side, uh, and, and they've, they've, they've mastered it. I think it's safe to say they've done very, very well at building that way, which is... is one of the things that they did a season ago as well. So it's not hugely different. They're adding new personnel, but the tactic itself is similar, which is why I think Inter still have to be the favorite to win Serie A. I thought that even before they started playing and, and came out of the gates very, very hot. But, I mean, this is a side that, sure, lost Lukaku, lost Hakimi, brought in Edin Dzeko, brought in Joaquin Correa, brought in Denzel Dumfries, who we'll talk about in a minute. Um, it's not like those players were left unreplaced and they won the league by 12 points a season ago. So, you know, why are we talking about Inter Milan as a side that is going to have this precipitous downfall when, A, they won the league so comfortably, and B, the teams behind them, I think you can make the argument, all three of them got worse. Milan, Atalanta, and Juventus, you can all make a strong argument, regressed. So I think Inter are the favorite to win Serie A. That's aside from the point, that's not even remotely related to a tactical analysis, but I figure while I'm talking about it, there's nobody to interrupt me, so I'll throw it in there. Anyway, um, once we get into the final third with this Inter side, that's where we really see how this new striker pairing will work. That That's actually, in truth, what sparked me to do this segment in the first place. I wanted to see how similar Lautaro and Dzeko would be to Lautaro and Lukaku. And the truth is that it is, there are differences, obviously, because Lukaku is such an irreplaceable player, but there are some similarities. One of them is, is that Dzeko dropping into midfield and receiving the ball. The other is Dzeko dropping off into the right-hand space and, and picking up the ball there as almost in... in 
not not as a right winger, but in between Lautaro, who's playing in the middle, and Darmian, who's playing as the right wing back. Dzeko is described on the broadcast for Inter versus Verona. I want to point it out because I think it really encapsulates the kind of player that Edin Dzeko is. He was described as a number 10 in the body of a number 9. And that 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 tells you how, how skilled Dzeko is at creating, at playmaking. Um, and that's why Inter are so comfortable with letting him get into those, those spaces over on the right, potentially cost 2v1s on that side of the pitch, but also to hold up play and put crosses in again. A number 10 in the body of a number 9. That's who Edin Dzeko is. And you've got a player in Lautaro Martinez who can play in the middle. He's deceptively good in the air. He can take, finish a chance from anywhere. But we'll also see them flip roles. So at times we'll see Lautaro do the same over on the left, though he prefers to stay central. And usually we're going to see Dzeko drift off to the right as opposed to Lautaro drifting off to the left. But they both do it. And that's what makes this striker dynamic so interesting. I don't want to say anything about Joaquin Correa yet because we haven't seen a whole lot. All we saw from Correa was a 12 or 13 minute cameo at the end of the Verona game in which he scored twice. Um, but that's not enough to really fully analyze and understand his role, especially because Lotaro was subbed off. But I think Correa is going to play a massively important role off the bench. I don't think we're going to see all three of them very often together on the pitch, but I think Correa will carve out a really, really important role on the bench, provide some striker depth for an interside that need it following the departure of Romelu Lukaku. Elsewhere, in the final third with this Inter side, we see Hakan Chalanoglu and Nicolo Barella stay wide. That, I think, is is kind of what we were expecting. Chalanoglu likes to stay there on that, that left half space and ping long balls in. There are very few players in the world who can hit a long ball better than Hakan Chalanoglu. And then Barella, we know, we've seen it with Inter Milan. We've seen it with the Italian national team. Likes to stay on that right side, and then he's the player who's going to make the late run or, or cut infield. Then he's just got a motor. Nicolo Barella, when you watch him, I mean, he's... He's just got a motor. He will not stop running. He's the kind of player who I feel like you don't want to play against. And I know that's a cliche statement because, you know, nobody, you don't want to play against anybody when they're good. But in Nicolo Barella, it seems to me, at least from me watching him, like, like the, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way either. He seems like a pest. He seems like the kind of player who will be in your ear for 90 minutes, always like going fully into, into challenges, always just, 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 he will not switch off, is what I'm trying to say. For the full 90 minutes, he will not switch off. That's what I love about him. That's why I'm so fascinated by watching him. And and that's why I think, in part, he's carved out such a crucial role with Inter and with Italy, is that that incessant, constant motor that he has, along with his technical skill, obviously. Um, Perisic and Darmian provide the width. And by the way, we haven't seen Denzel Dumfries a whole lot yet, but I do think eventually Dumfries takes Darmian's place at that right wing back role. And it's a place that he will have no problem thriving in. It's a similar role he played at PSV. It's a similar role that he played with the the Dutch national team at the Euros. Um, He will be perfectly fine, and I I hope that that switch happens sooner rather than later. No offense to Darmian, but I think Dumfries will be a bit better um, in that role. Out of possession, briefly, traditional 5-3-2, presses high to win the ball back, enjoys keeping possession, so we rarely will see them set up camp in their defensive third. I didn't see it a whole lot through their first 180 minutes. They're very focused on winning the ball back high, winning the ball back in the middle third. And I can probably count on on two hands the amount of times I saw them really give away long spells of possession in their own half. That's not how this interside are going to play, which makes them more fun to watch because they're they're more daring, they'll get forward. And then as a neutral, they'll probably open themselves up a bit in the, at the back as well. So the bottom line with this Inter Milan side is uh, losing Conte Lukaku and Hakimi Hurts, obviously, 
but it isn't terminal. And Inter have done well with the players they still do have to create a system that can find success early on. And like I said, I think they end up winning Serie A again. So that's a little bit about this Inter Milan side, this relatively new look Inter Milan side. Um, it should be one of the most exciting ones to watch in Serie A, I think, if the first two match days are anything to go by. Uh, all right, last thing we'll talk about today, and I have to get to it because it's a massive story. The transfer window is closed. The summer transfer window is closed. It has been, I mean, one of the, the, the top two craziest transfer windows of all time, and it's not two. I mean, how do you summarize this transfer window? How many how many top quality players did we see move? We saw Messi and Ronaldo move. We saw Lukaku move. We saw Jack Grealish move. We saw transfer sagas from players involving like Kylian Mbappe and Harry Kane that didn't move. Erling Haaland didn't move. I mean, I think every single half decent player was 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 consistently linked with some move that either did or didn't happen. And I can't remember the last time that this many world class players moved to a different club. Makes it so much fun. The entire summer was was absolutely bananas, and I think I speak for everybody when I say that. So what I've got planned for today, just briefly to touch on this transfer window as we kind of wrap things up, get into the fall portion of the season, and get ready for the January window. I've got five transfers that have gone a bit under the radar. And now it's easy for a transfer to go under the radar in this past transfer window because everybody's focusing on the massive, massive ones. But I've got five under-the-radar transfers that I think will make big impacts relatively immediately with their new clubs. Five players who were on the move for relatively low fees, who not a, not a lot of people were talking about, but who I think will leave big impacts regardless. Number one is somebody who I alluded to a couple minutes ago, and I think there's no better way to start. I'm going to keep things in Serie A. I'm going to keep things with Inter Milan. I'm going to go for Denzel Dumfries, who, of course, moved from PSV after the Euros uh, this past summer. I think he'll thrive in that wingback role that Hakimi played in last season, like I said when I was talking about Matteo Darmian. Uh, profile similarly to Hakimi. Likes to bomb up the pitch, likes to wreak havoc in the attacking third. Uh, he was referred to several times during the Euros as a one-man chaos agent, which I think is hilarious. Um, and we saw his quality consistently with, with the Dutch side at the Euros. Can he play well in a back four? Maybe, maybe not. I think he's probably better suited for a back five playing as a wing back. Gives him more freedom to advance up the pitch. But that's fine because that's how Inter Milan play anyway. Um, Inter were not the only club that he was linked to over the summer, it should be said. He did have suitors in the Premier League. He did have a whole number of different clubs that were calling his name after the Euros. Inter Milan were the ones to officially get their hands on him. There are not many players who were available on the transfer market who would have been a serviceable replacement for Akraf Hakimi. I think Denzel Dumfries is. Love the signing. Hopefully, sooner rather than later, we'll see him keep his place in the Inter Milan 11. Signing number two is Enoch Muepu at Brighton. I loved this signing as soon as it went through, and I've actually already lauded this signing on other platforms. Uh, Brighton is a, a progressive side. It's a fun side. One of the only things they needed, along with a striker, was a true box-to-box -box midfielder. Enoch Muepu is that. He shined at RB Salzburg a season ago. He can do a little bit of everything, which is really what I love about Muepu. He can do a little bit of everything. He defends well. He progresses the ball well, and he creates chances. Got a bit of a nose for goal. Had, I think, 20 goals and assists, 20 goal contributions for Salzburg a season ago. Um, and, and truthfully, I think he's a perfect pair with Ive Basuma, who is somehow still 
at the Amex. I don't fully understand how that is is the case, given the number of high-profile suitors that he had this summer, but Basuma is still at the Amex. bit more defensive-minded, but can progress the ball occasionally at times as well. I think with this 3-4-3 that Brighton like to use, that central midfield pairing of Enoch Muepu and Eve Basuma is, is going to be so, so good. They complement each other so well, I think. We haven't seen a whole lot of Muepu in the Premier League yet. It's only been three matches, and I'm sure that we've got to deal with a little bit of, of Premier League acclimatization, if that's even a word. Um, but once Muepu's feet are wet, we're going to see him pairing with Basuma, and it's going to be a thrill to watch. Signing number three. Not sure when the last time you heard about a top-quality Uzbek international was, but Eldor Somorodov at Roma is exactly that. He signed from Genoa as a replacement for Edin Dzeko. Eight goals a season ago. He's a really efficient goal scorer, as proven by his numbers on football reference. 83rd percentile in goals per shot, 70th percentile in goals per shot on target. He's clinical in front of goal. He does a lot out of possession as well, which is why I think he's a perfect Jose Mourinho striker. He's one of the highest pressing strikers in Europe, wins the ball back better than almost any forward in all of Europe's top five leagues, and he's a striker that fits Mourinho's mold. He scored for Roma in the Conference League. He recorded an assist in the Serie A opener against Fiorentina. He will likely, if, not, if he's not regularly starting like Dzeko was, he will get some significant minutes. Eldor Somorodov, a player who really broke out a season ago with Genoa, got to move up in Serie A, and I think he's going to be a player to watch. Um, the fee, I, off the top of my head, I don't remember what it was, but it was not it was not big by any stretch of the imagination, especially compared to some of the other fees that we saw in this transfer window, but Elder Shomorodov of Uzbekistan is absolutely one of my favorite under-the-radar signings from this uh, from the summer transfer window. Number four, back to the Premier League, is Frank Onyeka at Brentford, the newly promoted Brentford. I read a fantastic piece on The Athletic, um, about Onyeka, what he brings, his quality. And to be fair, we've already seen his quality at Brentford. Um, in the first three matches of the Premier League season, he played with Michelin in the Champions League a season ago against in, in that, that hellish group with Liverpool, Ajax, Atalanta. Um, and Onyeka is just, he's, the way he plays, it's, it's so important for a Premier League side to have a midfielder like this. A strong, physical midfielder, protects the back line, protects the ball, and wins the ball back for Brentford. Won't do a whole lot after that in terms of chance creation and whatnot, but this is a Brentford side that already has a lot of that with uh, Sergi Canos, with Ivan Toni. They've got players who can create chances and put the ball in the back of the net. This is a midfielder in Frank Onyeka who, who is going to be, for lack of a better phrase, the bruiser in this midfield who will, who will, will, will dispossess the opposition. He'll take the ball back. He'll win the ball back and then, and then hand the ball off to somebody who's a bit more skilled uh, with the ball at their feet. So Frank Onyeka for Brentford, like I said, every Premier League club need a player like him and Brentford have got it. That's number four for me. Lastly, number five on my list of under the radar signings who will make big impacts is actually a player who, if you listen to episode one, you've heard the name already. And that's Erby Leipzig's Mohamed Simakan. This is a player who is being tasked with replacing David Upamecano, which is a nearly impossible task given how good he was for Leipzig for the last few years. Um, but if the early matches are any indication, he's going to do a very good job at just that. Simikan is a player who I encourage you to buy stock in last episode. I'm, I'm so, so high on him. He was a player who I thought Bayern should have been in for last January. Um, just a progressive center back. He can play the ball well. He is one for the future, but again, he's somebody who can thrive and succeed now as well. That's what Upamecano was. Upamecano was, was a center back who 
was good on the ball, started moves, progressed the ball. That's what Mohamed Simikant is as well. He is going to be so important and such a quality player for a Jesse Marsh-led Leipzig side that will love to be in possession, will love to move the ball quickly up the pitch. See, every, every well, not every club, because not every club is living in the 21st century, but every club that operates itself the same way Leipzig do, which is this kind of analytics-based, new age, like, like, like not positionless, but but they, they get players who can do more than one thing well. Is, is Mohamed Simikan, every club that operates that way, needs a progressive ball-playing center back like Mohamed Simikan. Again, by stocking him, I'll say it again, I think he's going to be fantastic. And it starts now with Airby Leipzig. That's number five for me. So those are my five. Let me, let me go put my list back up again so I can give you one more time. Denzel Dumfries at Inter Milan is one. Enoch Mwepu at two, uh, for Brighton is two. Elder Shomorodov at Roma is three. Frank Onyeka at Brentford is four. Mohamed Simikan at Leipzig is five. In no particular order, I should stress, this is not like a power ranking. These are just five names that, uh, that stood out to me as players who moved and not a lot of people noticed, but will still be impact players regardless. So finally, to round things out, if you were a listener of episode one, you you hopefully remember how I'm going to try to end every single episode, and that is with a segment that I'm calling Bet the Bank. Uh, what Bet the Bank is, is, is no, it's not a sports betting gambling segment. I'm sure you can find plenty of those on this platform. What Bet the Bank is, is I personally am a big fan of youth talent, youth development. I love hearing about who we're going to be watching on the biggest stage five years from now. So what Bet the Bank is, is is just a little thing at the end, three or four minutes max, where I give one youth player, one relatively unknown player, who I think is headed straight for the top. A player who um, is going to be, like I said, one of those players that we're really, really talking about in three, four, five years. Last episode, I didn't go bold. I didn't go for a hot take because I wanted to set the benchmark, well... This sounds bad. I didn't want to set the benchmark low, but I wanted to start easy. That's what I that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to start easy. So I went with one Mr. Dominic Sobislai at Airb Leipzig. Uh the Bet the Bank player for today is a little bit more unknown to an extent. He's not he doesn't play in Europe's top five leagues. He's part of that Red Bull ladder again. My Bet the Bank player for episode two is Airb Salzburg's Karim Adiemi, who is is the next in a long line of just <laughs> nearly world-beating strikers that have played at Airby Salzburg. Um, fair disclaimer for, for, for this next segment. We ran, actually, breaking the lines, ran a player profile on Karim Adeyemi. It was written by Tunde Young, one of our writers. I strongly, strongly suggest going and reading that piece. I've taken bits from that and implemented it into this story. So a lot of what you hear on this podcast is what you'll read in that article. So go check it out. We'll try to link it in the either in the, the bio of this podcast or potentially on the tweet. Regardless, uh, this is a player profile written by Tunde Young, and I think everybody should go and check it out. Um, so as I said, Adeyemi is... is Next in a line of really fantastic strikers from this area Salzburg pipeline. We've already heard of Erling Holland. Patson Daka now is on the move to Leicester as well. Adeyemi is a 19-year-old German player that is leading the lines for Salzburg following Patson Daka's departure for Leicester. He is the, well, not the heir to the throne, but he is next in line. Uh, a season ago, his first full season in senior level football, seven goals, nine assists. And you're probably thinking, nine assists for a center forward is, is really fantastic. 
And that's because Adeyemi is not your traditional center forward. He's not the player who's going to lead the lines traditionally and, and get into the box and try to win headers and whatnot. He's only five foot nine. He, he doesn't have a whole lot of height to him, but his game is so unique because of it. He'll often drop into the half space or drop a little bit deeper, ask for the ball instead of crashing the six yard box for a cross, getting into the box and trying to beat a center back in the air. Six goals, one assist in Salzburg's first six matches, which is an absurd number. And it's largely due to, as as Tunde speaks about in his article, quote, highly spontaneous and unpredictable play. Because yes, he'll drop deep and ask for the ball, but he'll also sit on the back shoulder of defenders and, and make runs in behind in, in the, those gaps in the back line, very similar to Jamie Vardy. Adeyemi is a player who will be in the Champions League this season. He'll be playing with Salzburg in the Champions League. And by the way, a really, really intriguing group. So we'll all be able to see him on, on the, the biggest stage that European football has to offer, but this is a player in Kari Matiemi who I don't think will be playing at Salzburg for long. He's a two-footed, dynamic forward, can have an impact in all phases of the game, and truthfully, he's the kind of forward that many clubs are starting to prefer, the more well-rounded uh, forward who will, will look to get involved in more ways than just putting the ball in the back of the net. He's not your traditional target man number nine, which is what makes him such an attractive player. He also works well as a lone center forward, which you've seen at times, or part of a striker pairing. We've seen him play with Pat Sandaka a season ago. We've seen him play with Benjamin Cheska at, at Salzburg this season, who, by the way, Cheska may be a teaser for a bet the bank in the future. He's a fantastic striker as well, who I'm sure I, would, I will talk about very, very soon. But today we're discussing Karim Adeyemi, a player who who is destined for the top, I think. Such a unique style of play, such a unique build. And he's at a club that has had no shortage of impressive striker talent. So that is my Met the Bank today. Karim Adeyemi at Airby Salzburg. I'll say one more time, go and check out the player profile that Tunde Young wrote about him because it was really, really fantastic. Gave you a whole lot of great information about a player who you might not know a ton about. And with that, episode two has come to a close. So it's been 54 minutes. Thank you so much to all who uh, who bared with me through all of this. I hope I didn't rant a whole lot. I know I have a tendency to do that. Um, just kind of talk about something and then and then go on and on and on. And the next thing you know, 37 minutes have gone by. But I think I, I've kept myself to to my, my predetermined time limits pretty decently for this episode. Um, and here we go. I'm, I'm starting to rant again. So I'll, I'll reel myself back in. Um, if you were a fan of this podcast, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts from. This is not the only Breaking the Lines podcast that we have. We have several others that you can check out. I believe it's under the same account, under the same streaming account. Um, plenty of audio content for you to take and plenty of written content for you to take as well at uh, BreakingTheLines.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at BTLVid. Follow me on Twitter at WillFowler5. Um, what else should I say? How else should I should I sign off this? Nothing really other than just go and check out all of the content because if you enjoyed this podcast, you will enjoy everything else on the Twitter page on the website. I will be right back for more for episode three uh, next week, I would, I would assume, unless something absolutely insane happens that I can't go seven and a half days without talking about. You will hear my voice earlier than that. But uh, if all goes well, if all goes appropriately, then I'll be back here next week with a whole new slate of topics to discuss and to break down. Expect some sort of Champions League preview, whether it's the entire show or just a portion of it. Uh, that is absolutely a story that I'll be looking to touch on um, in episode three. So come back for that 
once again, please go and follow us on Twitter at BTLVid. Follow me on Twitter at WillFowler5 and check out our website, www.breakingthelines.com. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to the Tactics Room presented by Breaking the Lines. <laughs>